Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Sharma Kane, and I'm leading you in our weekly Bible study. Um, I have been unable to do the Bible study. I'm having a problem with my sight, so I have a surgery on Tuesday, so please pray for me, and we will keep up with the Bible studies, and it's supposed to be just a minor surgery, but just uh, keep praying for me anyway. 
And uh, let's do our traditional opening prayer with the Our Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, we are on First John chapter 2. And we're going to go right to it. And uh, it says, look out for the naysayers, lady. Second John, in the second letter, the elder tells us, an elect lady to watch out for the naysayers in her midst. These guys might even try making her their way into her church sometime soon, he says. He tells her not even to let them in the house because they're so wickedly evil and despicable. Yes, he said that word. The Antichrist, remember? He also throws in some stuff about love. Well, he's giving a big warning. Anyway, let's go right on to chapter 2 because uh, we want to just see what he's talking about. Okay, so we're on the first letter of John, chapter 2. And it's pretty long, so we're going to be reading for a little while. It says, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the right, Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, and if we keep his commandments, the one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Dang. Now I know why the, the other person wrote that other stuff. But whoever keeps his word in him and the love of God has truly been perfected, by this we know that we are in him. And the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Then we're on this part that says the commandment for our conduct and separation. I'm waiting to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm waiting to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm waiting to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one and I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but remember it's from this world. The remember part is me. The world is passing away, and also it's less, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Then here comes the creed for our conduct and the affirmations. Children, it is the last hour, and just just as you heard that Antichrist's Christ is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they are not really of us. For they have been of us, for if they had been of us, they would have been remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Think of that, people. As for you, let that abide abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. This is a promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need anymore for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. And then, now in respective to the characteristics of fellowship, in relation to our prospect purity, now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Uh, I think that bears repeating because uh, we need to really hear this because there's a lot of things going on in the world and we're not really of the world. So let's just unhook ourselves from all this. Okay, let's read 28 29 again. Now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Amen. So we're going to go on to 1 John chapter 3 next week, but let's read the notes. Okay. When it says in verse 1, advocate, literally it means one summoned alongside, a helper or a patron in a lawsuit. Used only by John in the New Testament and translated the helper in John fourteen sixteen, and other other chapters. Our defender in the courtroom of God is righteous and therefore effective. Ooh, amen. 
Now, chapter 2, verse 2. Propitiation, I love that word, but it means satisfaction. Christ is the only offering that satisfied God's, God concerning sin. Christ died for the sins of the whole world in the entire human race. That just gives me the chills because what we're hearing is the truth straight out of the Bible. Christ died for the sins of the whole world and the entire human race. And there's another note on Hebrews 2.17 if you want to look that up. Okay, so two, chapter 2, three, three, verse 3 through 5, obedience to Christ's commandments is the down-to-earth test of our faith. 2.4, we're talking about truth, is not merely correct knowledge, but the demonstration of the reality of God's love. And then uh, 2.5 talks about perfected, which means realized in practice. 2.6, the word abides in fellowship by keeping his commandments and ought, and is an obligation, not an option, as he walked in self-sacrificing humility. In verse 7, it says, from the beginning of their Christian experience. And verse 8, commandment, to love sacrificially as our Lord did. The darkness of our unsafe state is passing away, and the true light of Christ is shining in our lives. You know, that touched me so deeply because I had a dream about Jesus came to me, and he was a light. And it wasn't just a light. It was a powerful light that as soon as the belief touched you, it, it would knock you down. Okay, verse 10, there is no cause of stumbling in him, and there is nothing in him that would cause others to stumble. And that's right, we're not supposed to cause others to stumble. We have to try to be the best example we can be. And uh, when he refers to us as little children, it's all of John's readers. And then verse 13, if some understand fathers to mean the older ones among John's readers, the young men, the young. Others refer to all the readers, and the evil one, of course, okay, so he's referring to all readers, but he's talking about the young ones, the old ones. And then when he talks about the evil one, he is talking about the devil. Then in 2.15, he talks about the world. In Greek, it says cosmos. It is that organized system headed by Satan, but leaves God out and is rival to him. Though God loves the world of men, John 3.16, believers are not to love at all that which organizes them against God. We just have to love our Father and our love for our Father in heaven. In 2.16, it says, Lust of the flesh, lust, which have their base in our sinful nature, lust of the eyes, which often leads to greed and covetedness, the pride of life, vainglory, display, and boasting about one's possessions. So we're, we're taught here to be humble. And in verse 17, it says, doing the will of God, and it's the opposite of loving the world, and it proves the possession of eternal life and the living forever. So we're promised that we will be living forever. So right now, what's what's going on with us right now, remember to keep your faith because we are promised an eternal life. So this is just passing. Some people say it's like the blink of an eye, and some people say it takes too long. 
Anyway, in verses 18 through 27, the author is now contrasting the truth and falsehood. And in verse uh, 18, it says, the last hour. The entire period between the first and the second comings of Christ and the Antichrist. John speaks about the spirit of the Antichrist, which refers to a demonic forces behind the anti-Christian teaching and activity. The great coming, coming Antichrist it was the capital A, I guess the real one, that's spoken about in the Revelation. Has, there was many antichrists present and active at his time, at his time and throughout Christian church history. The ones of whom John is here speaking belong to the visible church, but were not believers. They deny the reality of the incarnation of Christ and his relationship to his Father and our Father. Okay, 220. You have an anointing from the Holy One. For example, you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit and thus can discern between truth and error. So if we have had an anointed from the Holy Spirit, we'll know between right and wrong. And then 22 says a liar, the supreme liar that is the one who denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and that they also deny that he is both man and God. The separation of the human divine was an early wrong heresy. It was, it was a heresy. It's both the same, they're one in God, God the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. That's what we believe as Christians. To deny the Son makes it impossible to become part of God's family and have God as Father. That was verse 23. And verse 27. You have no need for anyone to teach you. The spirit whom they had received would teach them how to distinguish between truth and error. The spirit may use human teachers to accomplish this. And then from 28, John's third great contrast is between life and death. And then abiding, keeping his commandments, assures no shame at his coming and when he will judge us. Wow, so that was a very powerful, you know, I have read this before, and this time, it just, it's like reading it for the first time, and it is quite uh, shocking, and I take it to heart. Shocking, I mean by powerful, truthful, it's actually a nice slap to get us going in the right direction. In the Greek, uh, I don't know how many nationalities if you do this, but in the Greek family, when they love you, they kind of slap you right in the face. You know, all the others will slap me, and the priest will slap you, and this <laughs> is just crazy. But they loved you with all their heart. They slapped you with that love. And uh, I think that's what that chapter was about. So we're going to look forward to the next one. Chapter 3 next week. So let's see. I think we still have some time. Oof. Let's see if we can read out of our book. I think we have read just about every story. So let me look really quick to see if I can find. Uh, okay, this one's after my, my own heart. So let's just read about. This one, okay. Then, uh, then I think we should get uh, probably a new book pretty soon because we we are just about done with this one. Okay, this story is called "Dream Big Dreams" and it's by Doris Toppin of North Bend, Washington. Bob Drennan still remembers the phone call 
that spring morning in 1986. It would change her life. Mrs. Drennan, the woman on the other end of the line, said, I'm from the Department of Social and Health Services. I know that you and your husband have had many foster children in your home, and I wonder if you'd be willing to help us out. How, Barbass? We're seeing more and more drug-addicted babies born at the University of Washington Hospital and need someone to devise a program of care for them. Can you do that? Barb, Rule 50, was stunned. I've suspected that some babies my husband and I take are drug-affected, she said. Recently, she had seen perplexing symptoms in babies placed in her home. The infants were anxious, couldn't sleep or eat, and cried uncontrollably. One trembled frantically in his tiny arms shaking, his chin quivering, and his body wrapped with severe tremors. <sighs> Boy, that hurts. Uh, I did work for County Hospital in the perinatal unit, and I worked with these drug-addicted babies, and they, they suffer just like that, and they also are stiff as a board, and they're very hard to console or keep food down, poor little things. Anyway, let's go. I can care for babies in my home, she told the social worker, but I can't design a program for them. Please think about the social worker pleaded. These poor infants are suffering and need help. Bob talked to her husband, Ken, an engineer, about the phone call. Then called her friend, Barbara Richards, 62, to tell her. Barbara and her husband, Gary, a reservation clerk at Foreign Airlines, also care for foster children, mostly neglected or abused children taken from their parents by social workers. The two couples had cared for more than 700 children in their homes during the previous 30 years. All those poor babies, Barbara said, tears sliding down her cheeks. They need something more than we can design. Years earlier, when she lived in mid, the Mideast, excuse me, Barbara had started a center for medically fragile children, and she didn't want to fight the bureaucratic system again. But Barb and Barbara couldn't forget the idea. During the next few weeks, they called each other frequently and called other foster parents in their small com- community of Kent, Washington, a Seattle suburb of 38,000 people. They found little help. Barb wished that she could just enjoy her comfortable two-story home and simply love the babies put in her care. But social workers continue to call. Do you have room? We need more homes like yours where foster parents know how to treat infants with drug problems. Babies are dying for lack of care. Barb was plagued with doubt. Why me, God, she prayed. I've never done anything like this. Barbara wrestled with similar questions. Barbara and Gary's four natural children were grown, and the couple now had seven foster children in their home, whose ages ranged from seven months to 27 years. Barb and Ken's two natural children were grown, but they had two adopted children and were legal guardians to a boy with cerebral palsy. When two drug-addicted babies died in a foster home within months, Barb telephoned Barbara. We really need to do something, she said. I'm ready to help, Barbara said. Later that evening, they sat on the table in Barb's kitchen and wrote down all their questions and the problems they faced. We would need to train nurses, find a building, raise money, 
buy all the extra equipment these babies need for round-the-clock care, Bob said, and we would need a doctor available at all times. Together, they outlined a facility that would provide care for addicted babies until they were healthy enough to be placed within a family. Because many drug abusers come from stable families who are devastated by the daughter's lifestyle and who want to keep the family intact, the expectation is that most babies will find homes with family members. Robert leaned forward and encouraged, when I think of the hurting babies out there, I just feel like crying. I know we have to give this all we've got. It looks right, Bob said, grinning. We're just moms, but God prepared us for this. I believe there are people out there who want to help. God has tapped us, and we better believe it for the babies. But we're not it, and looked over the plan again. Doctors, nurses, and social workers tried to create a program but gave up and kept calling us. I don't think we could do it, but here it is, designed by God. Bob's blue eyes shone through her glasses, and this won't be an institution where babies are warehouse. We'll move them back into family and foster homes as soon as possible. During the next two years, her husband provided $4,000 in care for children at home while Bob and Barbara traveled across the country on and off attending classes and seminars and visiting medical facilities. They worked with local doctors and hospitals, met with social service officials. As they took those first steps, more ideas developed and were made part of their plan. Finally, in May 1989, they took their proposal to the Department of Social and Health Services, which they asked for help three years earlier. In a meeting with officials, two women asked for $200,000 to fund the program. At the end of the hour, convinced the babies would be warehoused, the officials rejected the proposal. The two women were stunned. Bob looked at Barbara seated next to her in the meeting room. Usually tough and composed and saw her chin quiver and her shoulders sag. We've lost. Now what do we do? They had struck out. During the ride home, they were in shock and couldn't talk. Barbara cried all night. What are we doing wrong? She called out to God. We are blundering towards something not meant to be. Is this the best answer for these babies? It seemed like the end. But God had other plans. The next morning, the two conferred over coffee, then put their questions before God and listened. You brought us this far, Lord, but it looks like the plan is dead. As they prayed, they began to realize what had happened during the past three years. They had met doctors, nurses, social workers, even key legislatures, and preparing to set the program in motion. They realized that even the things didn't seem to have worked out at all, God was behind us and was looking for, working for the good. The pieces began to fall into place. We're more than qualified to do this, Bob said with a confident smile. They realized that their experience complemented each other's skills. Barbara's 30 years in caring for severely handicapped children and Barb's working with newborn and premature infants. There's nothing wrong with this program, Barbara said. It will work. As they talked, a quiet boldness grew within them. We've got to believe God's view that we can do this, Barbara said. Barbara sat back on a stool and smiled. I don't feel afraid, Barb. We can do this. 
there is no turning back. They decided to take their plan directly to the state legislature and begin preparing an even more comprehensive proposal. The women who put everything in writing and solicited, solicited letters of support from lawyers, doctors, social workers, nurses, foster parents, and hospital directors, they discovered shocking statistics. At the University of Washington Hospital, which is, has a special program for people with drug problems, 8 out of 10 babies were born drug-affected, compared to a national average of 1 out of 10 babies. One in six-month period, seven hospitals in the Puget Sound area reported that 1,500 of the 8,000 babies born had mothers addicted to cocaine, crack, heroin, and alcohol. Bob and Barbara knew that state legislatures had been studying the problem so that prepared, they prepared information packets for each legislature and drove the 50 miles to the capital to Olympia to begin lobbying. This is what's happening in Seattle, they said. We have to do something about it. From there, state representatives June Leonard and Margarita Prentice took the reins. This is exactly what we're looking for, said Leonard. In August 1989, state officials approved $500,000 for a nine-month pilot program and funneled the money through the Social Services Department, where officials presented the next hurdle. Be up and running in 30 days or you don't get the money, they told Barbara and Barbara. 30 days, gasped Barbara. How can we do all this? It can be done in 30 days. But they swung into gear and found a small medical facility that had been empty for several years. At the same time, a friend told a local newspaper reporter about the program, and a series of stories began appearing in the Valley Daily News. Bob and Bob told reporters what was needed, and the deadline they faced, and the phone calls began coming in with offers of help. Volunteers were asked to come to the first planning meeting held in the empty building. The two women prayed, and that night nearly 90 volunteers jammed the meeting room and spilled them to the porch. They were asked two questions, what can you do, and who do you know? To get the project started, Valley Medical Center donated $32,000 that opened a flood of help from the community. Now the work began. The doors and windows had been replaced, a sprinkler system installed, the furnace repaired, walls painted, medical equipment purchased, installed, and the staff hired in fewer than 30 days. The list of volunteers had grown to 200, but Bob and Barbara still didn't know if it was possible to pull everything together in time. Things looked bleak as the phone rang. This is Dick West from Boeing. Do you need help? Yes, she replied, grateful for one more volunteer to weld a paintbrush. But when West arrived the next day, he wore a suit, carried a briefcase, and had an assistant with him. The two men walked through the unit and studied the, the plans. We can bring a paint crew in, he said, but you need a project manager. Boeing understands timelines and management, and you don't have much time. We'll provide a project manager, and if you're not ready by deadline, we'll bring people in from Boeing to help. The two women couldn't comprehend the extent and effect of such a gift. And when Doug Burroughs, in his 20s, cheerful and handsome, walked in the next day, younger looking than their sons, they wondered if he was up for the job. The Burroughs calmly managed eight contractors, all the volunteers, and ran for supplies and permits himself as well. Listen, everybody, we kept encouraging the volunteers. We can do this. 
One day, an older woman stopped and asked, do you have any special need? And then, would you like to walk through, asked Barbara. We are making headway, but we don't have $10,000 for a sprinkler system. I have a wealthy friend, the woman said. He was very particular, and I want to know more about your organization. The next day, she stopped again. I had a check for $10,000 to give you, provided you never tell my son's name. Pediatric Interim Care Center opened in October 1990. Care for one month for a drug-addicted baby was $4,000, compared to the $30,000 at the University of Washington Hospital. The center's costs were lower because so much is donated. The nurses work for lower wages and or no benefits, and the medical director donates his time. Paid staff is minimal, and more than 100 people are on a waiting list to volunteer their help. The average treatment time for a baby is 36 days. The facility is equipped for 13 babies and has cared for more than 350 infants since it opened. It is a labor of love for Barb and Barbara to bring in the babies to the center for loving care. The community rallied around the center, helping to meet each new challenge. When money was needed for a machine that measures oxygen in the blood, a nearby church gave $5,000 in tithes and offerings just the amount needed. Medical staff and social groups called from across the country for information on funding, staffing, and caring for drug-addicted babies. It's overwhelming. They have no concept of what it's going to take, she told the volunteer after a stage of calls. The task was so daunting that the center remains the only one of its kind in the country. But the center must care for more than off-suffering infants. The volunteers must also take care of the mothers. When Tandy's baby, Kenny, was born on the kitchen floor, he was transferred to the hospital and three days later to the center. Each day, Tanya, 42, with her three other children, rode the bus across town, transferring through winter storms to sit with Kenny. She rocked her baby while watching other children play around her. The reality of having her baby taken away at birth had jarred her out of the clutches of cocaine. The drug trips you, she said to Barb, until everything, home, family, possessions is gone. Her voice broke, and I hurt my baby. The center trained Tanya how to respond to her baby's withdrawal symptoms, which would continue for six months. Babies born drug addiction are risk for drug abuse the rest of their lives and can suffer inappropriate emotional responses, laughing when they should cry, crying when they should laugh for a lifetime. But the center's staff also helped Tanya see what a beautiful baby she had. On the day before Kenny was to go home, Tanya brought in a gray, stiff undershirt worn through the arms, the only baby clothes she had. The nurses and volunteers knew it was Tanya's birthday. They put a baby shower and a baby celebration together overnight. When Tanya arrived at the next day, Barbara walked down the hall with her. We have a surprise for you, Barb said. The smiling group gathered around the table with balloons and gifts, and Tanya stole her decorated cake and held her children in her arms as tears rolled down her cheeks. Are you all right? asked Barb. Yes, Tanya said, swallowing hard. Wiping her nose. It's just that I've never had a party before. Barb and Barbara hugged Tanya. A new light shone in her eyes. She wasn't going home to a white picket fence, but she was ready for another run at life. 
Now, three years later, Tanya continues to be drug-free, raising her family and doing well. Day for Barb, the center, the center's director, and Barbara, its administrator, stretches from 6.30 a.m. to 6.30 at night. Their love for the babies keeps them going. Lives are being changed because two women had a dream and wouldn't give up and believe that innocent babies deserve a chance at life. Well... Okay, I love that story, and um, I worked, as I said, in the natal unit, the perinatal unit that had to do with uh, Douglas, those babies and their mothers, and it's not easy, and uh, we have to pray and pray and pray for all these people that are affected by drugs, and pray for wonderful angels of the spirit and also angels in human form to continue to do this work helping these little babies. So we'll say our closing prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. I want to say happy birthday to you, birthday babies this week, and God bless you in every way. If you would love love for me to pray with you, just let me know on my Facebook, Charlene Simpson McCain, good friend of me, and we can pray together. You can also send me a message. I'm trying to think of the easiest way for you to, to get to me. You can also write me at Citizen McCain at hotmail.com and what I'll do is just for our Bible studies I'll get another email so that I'll know it's right from you and I won't miss your miss your email if you need anything okay I love you very much hold on I know the world's upside down but we can't look at what's happening in the world we look we look to the heavens we look to love and that's what will keep us going just realize that we must love each other, that God loves us fairly and continually. And I love you also, and I'll see you next week, okay? God bless you. Bye. Love you.